Well, I don't know about uh, you, but in our house, the uh, Nye household has been uh, pulling out some old favorite Christmas stories, both to watch and to read. Uh, one of my favorites is called Mooseltoe. Um, it's, it's moose and mistletoe. It's it, mistletoe. It's really funny. You'll have to read it. Um, it's one of my kids' favorites. Uh, my daughter absolutely adores the Nutcracker tale. Um, but probably my favorite is this one right here, The Grinch. Anybody like this one? Uh, it's, it's become a cultural classic. And the, if you don't know the story, which I'm sure is, is a minority of you, uh, the, all the Whos down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot. But the Grinch, who lived just north of Whoville, did not. And that's how the book starts. And the Grinch is this horribly mean character who decides that he is going to steal Christmas from the Whos. And the way he does it is he becomes the anti-Santa Claus, and he dons a, a Santa Claus hat and coat, and he uh, invades their homes, and instead of giving, he takes. And he sucks every Christmas tradition, decoration, food, everything out of their house, even the log for the fire, so that the crumbs that he leaves in their houses are much too small for all of their mouths. And it is a horrible thing to do. He steals Christmas. And he loads it all up in his sleigh, pulled heroically by his little dog, Max. Who knows how he does it? And he takes it up 3,000 feet up to the top of Mount Crumpet to dump it. And he is standing there, and it's balanced on the peak of Mount Crumpet, and he's ready to shove it over the side, and he says, poo-poo to the who's, he was grinchishly humming. They're finding out now that no Christmas is coming. They're just waking up. I know just what they'll do. Their mouths will hang open a minute or two, and then all the who's down in Whoville will all cry, boo-hoo. That's a noise, grinned the Grinch, that I simply must hear. So he paused, and the Grinch put a hand to his ear. And he did hear a sound rising over the snow. It started in low, and it started to grow. You gotta love Dr. Seuss. But the sound wasn't sad. Why, this sound sounded merry. But it couldn't be so. But it was merry, very. He stared down at Whoville. The Grinch popped his eyes. Then he shook. And what he saw was a shocking surprise. Every who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presents at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. This is when I start to tear up. Seriously, every time I read this to my kids, I like... <gasps> and the Grinch, with his Grinch feet ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled three hours till his puzzler was sore. And then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, needs a little bit of snow. 
little bit more. If a Grinch came to your house and sucked all the Christmas traditions, all the festivities, the lights, the cookies, the decorations, the activities, the presents, the stockings, sucked them completely out of your house, every physical evidence of Christmas is completely gone. Would there be any Christmas left? Another way to ask this, my wife and I were talking about this the other day, what is the bare minimum, the lowest common denominator that has to be there in order for Christmas to be Christmas? Is there a center of gravity to the whole Christmas season that if you could take it out, Christmas would just implode or it would just be an empty shell? You could almost almost ask the question this way. What is the glory of Christmas? What is the center of gravity that weighs it all down? What's the oomph of Christmas? When the Bible uses the word glory to describe something or someone, it's getting at the idea of oomph, weight, gravity, importance, fullness, excellence on display. So what is the weight? What is the oomph? What is the excellence on display at Christmas? Well, I'd like to argue this morning that the glory of Christmas is this. The glory of Christmas is that the fullness of God's glory came to dwell with us as one of us. The glory of Christmas is that the fullness of God's glory came to dwell with us as one of us. Now, I don't want you to move past that too quickly. Keep gazing at it. Look at that baby in the donkey's feeding trough. Get it in your mind's eye. He is the fullness of God who became a human being and did not cease from being God. Chew on that for a second. It's the most weighty, the most wondrous, the most meaningful thing that has ever happened. God became man. God and humanity united in one person, the God-man. And he's right there in the manger, swaddled, weak. All other glories fade into the background. staggering. It jars you if you let it. That's the glory of Christmas. It's the glory of history. But why? Why would the fullness of God's glory come to dwell with us as one of us? What I'd like to do with the rest of our time together 
is I want to explore that question by sketching out the story of glory in the Bible. We're going to do it in three chapters. Chapter 1 is reflection and residence. Chapter 2, replacement and removal. Chapter 3, re-entry and renewal. You don't have to remember that. We're going to tackle them one at a time. I'll be in a couple different passages, but we're going to start at Genesis chapter 1. So if you would turn there with me. Pretty easy to find. Very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. And let's explore this first chapter in our story of glory, reflection and residence. Reflection and residence. One of the things that I've had the privilege of doing for um, the most majority of my adult life is uh, teaching teenagers. And uh, I've either been a teacher or, or a pastor. And there's a reason it's a privilege is because teenagers, although they're really good at hiding it, are almost as curious as my preschoolers. They ask good questions, really good questions, as long as they can overcome the uncoolness of asking questions. And one of the consistent questions that I face as a Bible teacher or as a pastor for teenagers is, uh, why did God make everything anyway? What made him want to do this? Was he lonely? Was he bored? It's a great question. It's a fantastic question. Now, I'm not going to read the whole creation account, but what I want to do to begin to answer this question is begin to look at how good everything is. And then that will lead us into the whole idea of reflection. So let's, let's look at the beginning of, of the creation account. Verse 3, God makes something. Let there be light, he says, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. So what he does is he speaks, creates something, and steps back and assesses his creation, and then he gives it his quality control seal of approval, and he says, good, it's good. The whole of creation, from the cosmos to koala bears, is soaked in goodness. And not just impersonal goodness. No, it's, it's a reflection of the goodness of their creator. The whole created order is an overflow. It's a reflection of the goodness of the creator. It's just a sample of his creativity, of his beauty, his strength, his majesty, not to mention his sense of humor. I mean, who else would come up with the idea of a three-toed sloth that moves like 0.2 miles an hour? Or a flamingo with ginormous legs. Psalm 19 sums it up the best. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. The universe is 24-7 busy shouting out the glory of the creator, reflecting his glory. It's a spectacle. It's a lavish tribute to his glory. But wait, there's more. Skip on down to verse 26 and 27 of Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So here he makes humans in his image. When you look at a mirror, you see yourself. But what you see is not you. It's a reflection of you. When God looks at humans, he sees a reflection, a mirror image of his glory. Sit and ponder that one for a sec. Every person that you see, every person sitting in this room, is actively reflecting the image of the glory of the Creator. And we are not God, but we image Him. We reflect His glory in a way that sloths and whales and koala bears, um, they can't. They do exhibit His glory in many other ways, but not in the full way that we do. So we are like walking, talking mirrors. And we are designed to be glory reflectors par excellence, scattering beams of his goodness and his wisdom like human disco balls, magnifying, making known his glory to all of creation and to each other. But what good is a mirror unless you're near it for it to reflect to you? And now, you've got the idea of reflection down. Let's get to this idea of residence first chapter. It's incredible. Go to the beginning of chapter 2 in Genesis. Just flip the page or look across the page. Chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, I'm pretty sure we're all agreed that God resting doesn't mean he sat and took a breather. He's God. He doesn't get tired. Um, what does it mean? Well, it means a couple of things, but one of the most exciting things that it points to is, is this. Genesis was written at a time uh, when, when all the other pagan cultures around Israel uh, worshipped lots of different gods, and they built temples for them. And the way that these ancient pagan cultures described their gods living in their, their separate temples it, is it would say they rested in them. And so that rest language is pointing to an idea of a temple, of a divine residence. What's so cool about this is that this is saying that, that God has just made an entire universe temple for him to reside in with his glory reflectors, his image bearers, us. So that we would be near him, residing with him, with his great glory, reflecting and enjoying and delighting in him forever. So that brings us back to the great question I keep hearing from teenagers. Why did God make everything? I think we can summarize it by saying, 
God created the universe not only to be a theater of reflecting his glory, but also as a temple in which his glory could reside and be with his image bearers for his glory, which is, by the way, our great delight. That's God's plan. But tragically, as I'm sure that you know all too well, that's not how the story of glory continues. So we're ready for chapter 2. Replacement and removal. Replacement and removal. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 1, so sorry for making you launch all the way across your Bible. But back in, let's go to the New Testament, Romans chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospels, then go to Acts, and then Romans is right after that. Give, let's share, have a second to get there. One of the most condemning lines in all of Scripture is found in Romans chapter 1. And if you found it, we're going to be in verses 21 through 23. We'll start in verse 21. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. As I read, listen for glory language and image language. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Part of the perverseness of sin is that we would take his precious glory that we were designed to soak in and reflect and delight in and replace it. Replace it with a lesser glory. Sin is exchanging the glory of the undying, eternal God for images of time-bound, mortal creatures. Now, Paul here is describing idolatry. Idolatry is the fundamental sin in the Bible. It is the unnaturally natural tendency of the human heart to get a glimpse of of God's glory in some created thing that was meant to reflect him and point us to him and say, hmm, there is something good. It's created by God to reflect God's glory and to inspire me to delight in him. But you know what? I think I'll take it, turn it into God instead, find my all in all in it, and not in the one who made it. The classic example of this in Exodus 32. You don't have to turn there. I'll just tell you the story. God's people... Israel had, had already beheld his glory, not only in the incredible rescue from slavery in Egypt, but also they're, they're right at the base of Mount Sinai, and God's visual glory is on display right there on the mountain in the form of a thunderstorm. They've heard his voice speak. They've been following his glory cloud until it led them to the mountain. No other people in history have seen so many visual glory fireworks as these people, but, but right here at the base of a mountain where God is visually displaying his spectacular glory, 
they take a bunch of gold, they melt it into an image of a domestic animal, they call it God, and they worship it. Worshiping something that is even less than a copy of a copy when the original is right there in front of you. I mean, there are just no words for the sheer audacity and stupidity of this kind of glory-replacing idolatry. And yet, this is us. This is me. This is you. We replace the glory of God with created things that were only meant to reflect him and point us to him. We exchange the eternal pleasure of his glorious presence for short-lived thrills of pleasure, power, wealth, status, recognition, entertainment, fill in the blank. And in so doing, not only do we replace his glory, but we ridicule it and we rob God of his glory. We ridicule it by reducing his infinite goodness to a petty thing and exchanging and exalting his creation over him. And worst of all, we rob him of his glory by seeking to exalt ourselves over him. We crowd him out of his rightful place, demanding recognition and ultimately worship for ourselves. If we were designed to be mirrors reflecting the glory of God, then we have become mirrors that bent in on ourselves seeking to reflect ourselves, seeking to delight in ourselves. And the problem is that mirrors that do that get shattered. And that's what happens to us. There is a natural consequence to this too. We've looked at the replacement. Now let's look at the removal. We get removed from his glorious presence, which, by the way, is our only good and our greatest good. If we flip back to Genesis for just a moment, I'd like to show you something. It's nice thing it isn't all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve have just done some glory replacing. They've replaced God's glory with the glory of self. They have replaced his rule with their own self-rule. And they've declared themselves independent from God. And then... His glory draws near. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. Genesis 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Their greatest delight, the very joy that they were made for, draws near They remove themselves from his presence. They hide in fear and shame. And this leads us to verse 23 of the same chapter. Therefore the Lord God sent them out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had taken. God finishes and formalizes the removal process. Adam and Eve began it, and then God finishes it up. He sent them out from his presence. He blocked them off from his glory, which they themselves have already done. 
And if you keep on reading Genesis, the evil and the perversion that results from this removal from his glory is shocking and heartbreaking. But I don't think we need to read Genesis to know that, do we? You and I know that pretty well. We're very well of our, aware of our unnaturally natural tendency to replace God's glory and to rob him of his glory. To remove ourselves far from him. Each one of us knows pretty well that sense of shame and I want to hide and get out of here. I don't want to be in his presence. We are those curved in mirrors, those mirrors bent in on ourselves shattered and we're broken but the story of glory continues and there's a light of hope that does chapter 3 re-entry and renewal re-entry and renewal have you ever been reading a story or watching a movie and then all of a sudden an old character that you thought was written out of the story suddenly re-enters after an absence I'm thinking like Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. If you haven't, I'm totally going to spoil it for you. I'm sorry. <clears throat> he falls into the abyss. You think he's gone. And then he comes back. He re-enters the story and hope dawns again. Well, the same thing happens with God's glory in the story of glory. God has been at work since the garden. He's been initiating relationship by grace with a guy named Abraham. Given, he's made a people out of his descendants, and he's called the people to himself, even rescued them from Egypt, and then his glory shows up again in the book of Exodus. Would you turn to Exodus 24 for me? Exodus 24. Referenced it earlier with the story of the golden calf, but God's glory shows up on a mountain, and God's people are beholding it. And it makes you realize his glory is re-entering. There's hope still. Only this time, his glory is veiled, and it's a little scary. So look at verses 15 through 18 in chapter 24. This gives us just a, a taste of what God's people get to see. Verse 15, Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The cloud is God's glory made manifest. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And so, and there's another part of Exodus where the people are like, Moses, you got to handle this. We can't bear being so close to this glory. It's, it's frightening to us. And for a glory replacing and glory robbing people, the pure glory of God would be kind of frightening. So Moses goes up as a mediator. He's a middleman. He, he's a priest who can relate to God on behalf of the people. He can also relate to the people on behalf of God. And God wants to reside with his people so they can see his glory and be satisfied with his glory. He's, his glory is re-entered, but, but it has to be veiled. It can't be unveiled. 
They would die. And also, has, there has to be a mediator, someone to go back and forth. And so to, to summarize the rest of, of the story of, of Exodus, his people can't go up to be where he is because of their sin. So he comes down and comes to be where they are. He gives Moses these really fancy instructions to build a, a tent called a tabernacle so that his glory can reside with his people and yet be veiled, veiled in a tent. And, and the glory has to have priests, mediators, who can relate to God on behalf of the people and relate to the people on behalf of God. But even though it's veiled and it needs a mediator, the glory has re-entered. Hope. There's movement. The plot's going. And, and once his people get to the land that he has for them, it, it, the land is, is pictured in the Bible as, as a place where it's kind of a, a, a recapitulation of, of Eden, of, of the garden. So that God's glory and God's people can be together again. As, as long as it's, his glory is veiled in a temple, and, and there's mediators, priests, and, and they obey his word. And they, they follow him. Israel failed miserably. They, they vomit. Ultimately, in the book of Ezekiel, he gets a vision of the glory of God departing out of the temple and standing outside the city of Jerusalem in judgment. And, and Israel gets demolished by the Babylonians, and God's people are banished. They've been removed, they've been removed from God's presence once again. But, but then, in Ezekiel 43, there's this promise that, that God's glory is going to come back. It's going to come back and re-enter a new temple. And it's going to bring renewal to the human heart to, to be able to be in God's presence and, and live and reflect his presence once again. Well, time passes, a new temple is built, but, but nothing like Ezekiel's vision comes to pass. And, and God's people are wondering, when will God's glory come to reside with us again? When is he going to re-enter and, and, and it's going to be the same as it was? When will he renew us so that we can behold his glory like we were meant to? getting us ready for the glory of Christmas. Can you turn to John chapter 1? If we look at John 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in your New Testament, fourth book in. If we look at the Gospel of John, the first five verses, he describes this person named the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, the ultimate glory reflecting. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So you get a glimpse of hope. There's a person out there who is God, and yet he's distinct from God. And all things were made through him. He is God's perfect self-reflection. He's the ultimate mirror because he is God. 
check out what verse 14 says about this. This is the glory of God. And the word became flesh. And the word became flesh. God's perfect mirror. The ultimate image of God. The ultimate glory reflecting mirror became flesh. God's glory is laying laying on a feeding trough. He's visible. We can see his glory. Look at the rest of the verse. Verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word in the original language is literally literally to pitch your tent. God, God's fullness of glory has come to pitch his tent among us. Just as God's glory resided with his people in a veiled tent in the wilderness, now God has pitched his tent to reside among us once again, but not as a place, as a person, in a temple of flesh and bone. Just like the Christmas hymn that we sang, Hark the Herald, veiled in flesh the Godhead see hail incarnate deity. And the next phrase, we have seen it. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God's glory has re-entered the story, pursuing his cracked mirrors, pursuing his broken image bearers. He arrived, and he came to renew us. And if we see, not in the way that John the Apostle saw, he got to see with physical eyes, but plenty of people saw Jesus with physical eyes and didn't see the way that really counts, which is seeing and trusting and believing and understanding by faith. If we see this child, the glory of God, as the one who is God's ultimate mirror, came to restore God's broken mirror, God's broken uh, glory reflectors, then it renews us. And the fullest display is in John chapter 12. Feel free to skip over there real quick. In John chapter 12, Jesus just enters Jerusalem for the last time. He's there ultimately to die. And the way that God talks about Jesus' glory in the book of John is not in terms of the Mount of Transfiguration where his clothes are shining and his face is beaming, but it's in terms of this. Look at verse 23 of John chapter 12. This is the glory of the Son of God. The hour has come, Jesus said, for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Skip down to verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So what is the glory of Christ? 
What is the fullest display of God's glory that we get to behold at Christmas time? Is that this baby, who is the glory of God, came to glorify God by dying on the cross. It's a place, it's this beautiful good news where he took on the doomed fate of glory replacers and glory robbers like us as the perfect glory reflector as our substitute. And this is what relieves us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that as we behold this stunning glory of this good news, we are changed, we are transformed. In 2 Corinthians he says, this is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Beholding this glory, we get to be transformed into his same image from one degree of glory to another. When the Grinch beheld the glory of Christmas, and he realized that Christmas isn't from a store, but it's something a little bit more. His heart grew three sizes that day. He was transformed beholding the glory of Christmas. And that is God's intent for us. To behold his glory dwelling among us, residing with us, to renew us. And one day he'll return with unshielded glory and we will behold him face to face. We will reflect his glory like disco ball. What we once hid from, which once would have destroyed us, will then give us eternal delight. And his glory will reside with us forever. Revelation 21 is just astounding. Go home and give it a read. It's the new residence that we will have with him. And listen to this. And I saw no temple in that city. No need, no need for veiled glory there. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Whereas before, the universe was a temple of God's glory. Now, the new Jerusalem, he is the temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Full renewal, all because of that glorious re-entry. This is the glory of Christmas. Feast on it, church. Is this the glory of your Christmas? We are distracted people. Maybe you came in pretty distracted and you can't see this. We are weak people. Maybe you came in feeling pretty weak and empty and exhausted by life. We are broken people. We're shattered by sin. And God's glory is able to renew us. Whether broken, distracted, Weak, lift your eyes to the glory of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the immense 
mercy that you have shown, giving us new birth into a living hope of your glory. Your glory veiled in flesh in the Son of God who came to restore broken glory reflectors like us. God, I pray that this truth would sink down deep into our, our hearts and that we would, like the Grinch, be changed. Father, I pray particularly that you would help our distracted eyes to fixate on the glory of Jesus. Help those, Father, who are weak to attach themselves by faith and then be made strong to the glory of Jesus. Father, I pray for those who are broken and shattered by sin. I pray that they would find renewal in the glory of Jesus. We thank you, God, for your goodness and kindness to us. In Jesus' name.